Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Hello and welcome back, listeners, to our final review of the Chronicles of Narnia trilogy. Um, With me, I have, for the last time, at least for this series... Tommy! Tommy's back, yes. So, yeah, so we have... Us two have, have gone through all three of these movies. Andrew was with us on the first one, um, but we finished out the series with Voyage of the Dawn Trader. And so I'm, this is one that we both are, we, do, we both know the least about because we know the first one very well. We know the second one pretty well to a certain extent. Um, but I think you've seen this one before, right? Yep. Did yeah. it. Uh, we watched it in church. Like, Every time I first watched these movies, it was it had to do with my church. I just remember in Sunday school we watched this, and yeah, I I, I won't get into anything at the moment, but I do remember watching it back in like 2011. Okay, yeah. So yeah, this is my first time seeing it. So um, I guess we'll have a little bit of an interesting discussion because um, you actually have a little bit of history with it, um, not a whole lot, but at least some. So yeah, either way, this is a movie that is a little bit. It's at least the most foreign to the two of us of the of this trilogy. Um, but yes, you're right. This did come out in 2010. But what's interesting is that uh, it's not under Disney's name. It's actually under 20th Century Fox, which, of course, now they own 20th Century. But at the time this was released, they Disney did not own did not own them. So and for all intents and purposes, this is a 20th Century product. Uh, which I thought was very, very interesting because the first two are, you know, they're very Disney and this one is, you know, not under their name anymore. Right. So let's add, I guess what's interesting to me is um, after doing the rating, finding out the ratings and the and the um, box office returns for this movie, it looks like having the Disney name on it um, critically kind of lowered the scores for it at least. IMDb score of a 6.3, meta score of, of a 53, Rotten Tomatoes at a 50%, critic score, 58% audience score, cinema score at an A minus, and a letterbox score of a 2.7. So all the way across the board, um, is, with the exception of cinema score, uh, everything looks to be around that 50% range, um, which is not looking too good for Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I know from talking to you and whoever else has seen it, which honestly to me hasn't been too many people that i know this is definitely the movie that is um of the trilogy the most different of the three it is the longest book of the seven books of the chronicles of narnia however of the movies they've made it's the shortest so i don't know explain that one to me i guess but whatever right yeah it's weird because the first two movies are like close to two and a half hours actually i think prince caspian hits the two and a half hour mark the first one comes pretty close this one's like what an hour and forty-five. It's yep. compared to yep. them, it's pretty short. In fact, I think it's actually half the length technically. Um, so yeah, it's surprising that uh, a movie like this, um, you know, kind of essentially capstoning the trilogy more or less, is the shortest. But also, again, different company this time. Uh, when it came out, lower scores than the other two. Um, again, except for cinema score. So overall, it's looking kind of strange for this, for the ending of this trilogy, more or less. Um, it, it just looks kind of weird. 
Money-wise, though, it did rather well. Um, it wasn't a complete bomb like uh, what happened with Prince Caspian. Um, it wasn't too great either. Budget of 155 million, opening weekend 24 million, domestically 104.4 million, foreign markets at 313.8 million for a worldwide total of 418.2 million. So, I guess technically it did double its budget and then some, but not by a huge margin. Yeah, no, this is one of those like. You know how a lot of movies back in this time were doing uh, lots of part one and part twos, like Harry Potter did, Deathly Hallows part one and two. Right. Uh, Catching, no, Mockingjay part yeah, one and Mocking two. Jay, yep. Uh, Hunger Games did that. Uh, this movie, in my opinion, can be split into two parts. Yeah. Um, yeah. They could wondering. have done that. Um, however, they didn't, and they pushed everything into it, uh, which is kind of... A bummer, as we'll talk about here. Uh, it's it's jam packed and very poorly paced, but overall, yeah, this movie could have definitely been into two parts. Yeah, I wonder. Um, I wonder, you know, if they would have been able to do that because uh, the license to make um, the Chronicles of Narnia movies did did expire in 2011. So I wonder if, you know, maybe if they really pushed for it, if maybe they could have pumped out a, a sequel and made this into a two-part story. Um, but I wonder how much of that license expiring um, affected the production of, of this movie. True, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to tell, but I, I'm just, you know, it's, I'm just curious. If, if they didn't have the license to be expired so soon, you know, would this have been a two-part story and been more of a bigger epic kind of like, what was happening with the other series um, that, that you mentioned. Okay, well, we're going to hop right into spoilers. So if you haven't seen Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, it, is on, it is on Disney Plus, correct? Yes, this is on Disney Plus. Okay. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, I mean, it should be relatively easy to get your hands on if you have a subscription to Disney Plus. If you don't, um, it's still relatively easy to find. I know you can rent it off of Amazon Prime. Um, but if you haven't seen it yet, um, and you would like to have it not spoiled for you, you can pause the podcast now and go watch it. And of course, you can come back and continue on this podcast as we get into spoilers. So you have been warned. This is now the spoiler territory. It has been three Narnian years since the events of Prince Caspian, and Edmund and Lucy are now living with their cousin, Eustace. In one of the rooms is the painting of a ship out at sea, and while the three of them are together, the painting comes alive, transporting the three of them to Narnia. The Don Trader comes to rescue the three kids, captained by Prince Caspian himself. He is on a voyage to obtain seven swords from seven men Miraz had banished years prior. The group reach the first island and are ambushed. Lucy and Eustace are sold as slaves, but the crew of the Don Trader make a surprise entrance, liberating the island. They then head toward the next island, where a group of invisible monsters capture Lucy and force her to say a magic spell in a book. She finds the spell that makes the creatures reappear, and come to find out they are only one-footed dwarves known as Duffelpuds. They then head to the third island, where there is a magic pool that turns everything it touches into gold, except for one of the swords. It is pulled from the pool, and another is found in a canyon filled with gold pieces. Eustace falls victim to the greed and is turned into a golden dragon. The crew then head to Aslan's table and find three more weapons. But to get to the last remaining sword, they need to head into Dark Island. Inside, they meet a sea serpent that Edmund defeats, overcoming his temptation just as Eustace places the final sword on the table. From the island come Narnians who are trapped. Lucy, Ed, Eustace, and Caspian join Aslan as he sends the kids back home, never to return to Narnia. The room returns to normal as if no time had passed for the kids. Eustace narrates an entry from his journal, signifying his change in perception as credits roll. Okay, so let's just hop right into again, this opening scene. Um, we do get introduced to Ed and to Lucy, who are much older now. 
Um, see, Prince Caspian came out in 2008, right? So the, it's, only two, it's only been two years. Yeah, it's only been two years, but they, it looks like they've changed a lot. Oh, yeah. Especially Lucy. Especially Lucy. Especially Lucy. Yeah. And then we noted in um, in Prince Caspian, they wanted to get with filming as fast as possible because the script was already pretty much done by the time that the first one had finished, uh, had been released, right? They had the script finished and they wanted to get right into production so that way they, you know, could actually do uh, another movie and not have to wait, you know, however long it could it could last to start another one because the kids would be too old is what Andrew Adams had said. Um, so my guess is they probably began filming no longer than a year after the first one came out. Uh, and this one, you can definitely, and the, the, in Prince Caspian, they did age. It's pretty clear. But in this one, in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it looks like, uh, I mean, we, they, Lucy and, um, and Edmund look much older than when they did in the last one. Lucy is almost the same age, if not the same age as Susan in the first one. I think Ed might be the same age as Peter in the first one around this point. It's pretty wild, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I never, I never really thought about that. Yeah. So we do find out that they're living with their cousin. We do we I know we find out that um Susan is um uh, Susan and Peter are off other places. Um and do we know where Peter went? I forget where exactly he Ended up going. We see him once in like a. It's in a flashback. I think. Not even a flashback. In a what could have been, or what, oh yeah, no, you you're know. right. You're right. So you know he doesn't look any different from the 2008 Prince Caspian. Yeah, but yeah, he's not. He's. We don't really know where he's at. Yeah. So either way, um, it's pretty quick and pretty clear. Um now that this movie is not going to be focusing at all on the other two Pevensey kids, the, the older two. It's going to be focusing pretty much solely on the younger the younger two, uh, which we kind of figured from the last movie when they said that Peter and, uh, and Susan would just not be returning because their time is done with Narnia. Um, and then they also kind of set up for another third film that Edmund and Lucy could come back. Um, so... I guess I'm a little bit surprised that, um, you know, we're not see, we don't see really at all Susan and Peter. We get one brief glimpse of Susan um, before there's like a, like a, uh, a hallucination pretty much scene with her. Um, but Peter is pretty much subject to that scene alone. Um, and so it's kind of strange, you know, being that, you know, we grew up with the four of them seeing pretty much only two of them take the helm for the film. And you know, if it hadn't been written down by C.S. Lewis that way, uh, I probably would have been upset with the movie for doing that. But C.S. Lewis strictly wrote for Edmund and Lucy because it showed that, well, Susan and Peter's time was done. Mm-hmm. So to respect that, they they went with it. And so I'm not going to blame the movie uh, for you know the absence of Susan and Peter because that is how C.S. Lewis uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, wrote it so right. but right. yeah it, it is different i will say to have a narnia movie especially after you grow up with them to not see like those two characters that you kind of look up to uh more more so peter because just how susan was written but uh yeah it's 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 different and it takes some getting used to right off the bat um and to be honest i don't get used to it throughout the entire film i'm you know by the end of the film i'm still like I wish Peter was here. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> I you. wish I wish Susan was here with her arrows uh, up in the crow's nest doing something. Uh, not, you know, not Edmund doing, you know, swinging a sword and Lucy screaming. Right. For Narnia. And that's about it. 
Yeah, and uh, and this kind of leads into um, one of the I think the, one of the biggest things about this movie is that it is starkly different from the previous two. Oh yeah, we got a different director. We have a different composer. We have a different um, company that's that's financing it. It's everything's different um, on when it comes to the actual like filmmaking aspect to it. It feels very very different tonally from the last one. Very very different setting wise and and stuff like that from the last two. If because the first two films they feel you know they feel like almost companion pieces because they are so similar but they're all you know they still follow or they still um, explore different different ideas and different themes right um, this one because like the first one's like a is, stri- is starkly a fantasy the second one is kind of getting into a more medieval phase and then this last one is kind of going into a more piratey phase um, so this one um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader is again compared to the trilogy is kind of the odd one out because we're missing two of our characters first mo- as first um, and then second just the way that it looks with it shot everything else about it is also you know way different than what we have had in the previous two movies so I gotta ask um because this opening I did notice the music um and I, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts if like maybe because for me, at least I was like I was kind of into the music at first. And then once they got into Narnia uh, and things began happening, I began to pull away from that. Um, what what do you think? Did you like the music at all in this movie or did you feel like it for the most part was just because since it's not the same guy, you know, just not on the table? Well, I'm not going to knock the music just because it's a new composer. Uh you know, because because I loved Claus Bedelt in the first Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. but I also loved Hans Zimmer for taking Claus's themes and then completely making it one his own, but staying true to the themes and giving us that uh, familiar uh, familiarity. Now, this composer, David Arnold, did not do the first two movies justice and Harry Gregson Williams justice. Uh, I was not a fan of the music and I tried to keep an open mind. I wouldn't go in and thinking, Oh, who's, who's David Arnold? I don't, I'm not ready for this. Harry Grayson Williams. Where's he at? No, I was, I was getting prepared and I was like, okay, Harry Gregson Williams probably, I don't know why he didn't return probably just because of the new production crew, but I am going to give David Arnold a shot here. And he made me angry because our first theme, uh, yes, we we had evacuating London used again when they went into Narnia, but it's almost become like that iconic trademark of the entrance into Narnia or the beginning of an adventure. And to kind of just completely sidestep it and go a different direction, you know, is brave. And to be honest, it didn't work. I didn't like the feel of the opening title sequence when uh, it shows, I think, just the streets of London. Uh, There's really no prominence to uh, the title. In the first one, it it goes, the title flies over the tracks of the train as the the kids are on their way to, you know, a new uh, temporary life that they're all kind of in fear of like not sure what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the second one, you get a um, just this big wide establishing shot of Caspian fleeing and it really sets the tone of 
this guy's character. Well, this one, it just kind of or something like that as it just kind of makes its way through London or something like that. Or no, not even makes its way through London. It just kind of uh, crane shots up over a street. Yeah. Yeah. So. It, I think part of that too is that, you know, the recognizable themes, there are sometimes there, but uh, at least but with just barely. Yeah. Just they're Yeah. They're very much taken, taking a backseat. It feels like. Yeah. Because um, we never get the uh, the White Witch's theme when she does play a role in the story. Um, we never get her theme at all mm-hmm. in, in the movie when she does show up. Um, we never get um, we sometimes I think every once in a while we'll get the um, the main theme that happens. I think it happens at the beginning and then also at the very end. There are some moments where like Lucy kind of comes back to terms with things mm-hmm. with Aslan kind of talking to her and you get that slight boom 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 right boom 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 and you think oh okay okay but it's quickly gone yeah they do not stay true to it and oh man i will get into it but there are so many moments where they go to different islands and it's almost like this composer is like ripping off different movies that kind of follow the atmosphere of each island like i mean especially when they're on the boat and there's like a little quarrel on the boat yep and you hear like Jack Sparrow. Oh, we're gonna I, get into yeah, it. We'll get into it. I pointed. I know when, oh when that goodness. scene came. No, this is the scene when um, it, it's when Eustace and the mouse are Reaper fighting. Cheap, yeah, yeah Reaper Cheap. Um, there's They're fighting uh, over the ration, or well, Reaper Cheap's trying to mm-hmm. get Eustace to kind of fess up and be like, "Hey, uh, now stand on your two feet and fight me." Yeah, and you hear like Jack Sparrow's theme. Yeah. It's from I pointed it out when we were watching it. I pointed out, I paused and I was like, hang on a minute. And I pulled up Jack Sparrow and got to the part in that track where there's a, it's when that little motif, um, uh, when that, it was that very, very similar motif had played in the, and the soundtrack, um, for voice of the Don Treader. And I noticed it and I had just like minor note differences. It was so lazy. It's weird. It was, it was so strange. Um, now, I don't know if exactly they were using temp music or not, but uh, it either way, in a couple of instances, this is a great example where uh, it feels like they were kind of, you know, trying to bring back some of the, um, or at least trying to emulate some of that Pirates of the Caribbean uh, like feel to the music. This is exactly one of those or other scenes when they were using like um, recognizable themes for other stories or from other movies as I, well. I agree that they can go a pirate sounding way with the score. Mm-hmm. Problem is make it Narnian pirate. Yeah. yeah. Do your, do like recall some old uh, motifs, but make it really like scurvy and all that kind of stuff with like a, like a with a fiddle. You can do that. Um, but man, it was just too much like Hans Zimmer's, or maybe Claus Bedell. I, I got to look and make sure I'm not like giving credit to Hans Zimmer for Jack Sparrow's theme, but uh, it just, I don't know. I, I feel like there's so much more they could do with a Narnian pirate theme rather than just kind of pull like very stocky based off of Pirates of the Caribbean, which, you know, had come out like World's End came out in 2007. Yeah. So this is three years after the third pirate installment. Mm-hmm. So that theme was very solidified and recognizable at that point. Yeah. So they had no excuse to make that sound like that. Yeah. It's, it's just weird because, um, another thing too, is that if it isn't like, like that scene where, you know, the, the, 
music is just feels, you know, like I, I've heard this before um, with Jack Sparrow's theme, but at the same time, you also have like battle sequences where the music just goes just full on generic. And I, 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 I agree with you. I think because of, you know, what Harry Griggs and Williams has already set up, which is, you know, you can use more exotic instruments because you're in a very fantasy like land. Um, which so it just adds to that atmosphere. I think now being, you know, it's centered more around like a pirate theme, right? Around some of like a, an emulation almost of Pirates of the Caribbean at this point um, that you could still have very creative with very interesting instruments kind of pulling in that same idea of pirates, but at the same time that Narnian fantasy. So I wonder if Greg, Harry Griggs and Williams had done the score for this, you know, what would it have sounded like? I would have loved. I would have loved to hear his take on a like a pirate theme. I would mm -hmm. love to hear Harry Gregson Williams to kind of take on that role, but unfortunately, we did not get that, and we had to deal with David Arnold, who decided to go. I'm gonna make it based off of this Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Not to mention when they go to uh, Aslan's table, and it's that more jungly area, and we hear big fanfare sounding like. Uh, John Williams Jurassic Park. Yeah. And we both pointed that out. We were like, wait a minute, yep, wait a minute. One, yep. I remember hearing that and being like, oh, so this dude's not original. Yeah. Is that what I'm getting? And and that one too, because that's also like, you know, if it's at Aslan's table, you still have that, um, the moment for bringing back the theme um, of being, you know, the stone table from the first one. I feel like that almost elicits or some kind of recognizable motif that, you know, would hearken to Aslan. We never, I don't think we ever get that. No, we never do. Yeah. And so I, I bring this all up because I think that the music in this movie, because it was very important in the last movies, we noted this and we talked about it. The music in the last, those last two films are it's very good, but also wildly important to the story. And this one, I, I feel like it takes a back seat. Like I, like I mentioned, I was into it for like the first scene or so. I was like, okay, this is interesting. And I think it's when they also, right when they get into Narnia, I was like, okay, this is, you know, it's new. That's okay. I'm going to see where it goes. I'm kind of on board with where it's going at first. And then once they hop into the first action scene, which happens no more than 20 minutes in, um, it takes a complete left turn into a village that feels more on the generic side, right? If, if the music in this in this movie um, feels kind of cliche, unfortunately, which is I hate to say because in the last movies it's been very good and very more outside of the norm because of its fantasy elements. And this one, if I feel the complete opposite, I, I feel like you know I you know I don't I feel like this music is going for a cliche style just to kind of put something over an action scene uh, instead of going for something that, you know, actually has a lot of, it's very unique in of itself. I never got that with this music, I, especially after about 20 minutes or so, once they hit that first action scene, action scene that's where I'm like, oh, okay, this music is very not what I was expecting, unfortunately. So we do open with just straight up Edmund and Lucy on the streets of London. Mm -hmm. and Edmund's trying to get into the military i guess yeah he's trying to enlist he's trying um, to enlist so i think it's war. getting towards the end of the war at this point it is yep. yep and uh he doesn't make it any still too young he's being made fun of and he's like ah but i'm a king to lucy you know he's right. pulling that card again like they did in prince caspian and i need to read voyage of the untreader i don't know if that's you know brought up if c.s lewis had written that edmund was still like I want to enlist. I've I've fought in wars, all that kind of stuff. I can't remember, so don't mm -hmm. be mad at me, listeners, if I'm you know knocking this and it's actually part of the book. But um, 
where we we see that again, Edmund's like angry that uh, he is a king being treated as such in the real world, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, Lucy looks over while Edmund's talking and sees like this couple up against a pillar and watching them like kind of flirt and touch each other on the face before like pre kiss or something. Right. And then she starts like, like touching her face, like just kind of like wanting that longing for that touch of a man, you know? And, and you're just like, Oh, okay. So I guess this is what Lucy's going to de- be dealing with. And Edmund's dealing with this, uh, this yearn for leadership once again. Um, and it, it was kind of quick. But it kind of just gave us like right in our face, like, oh, this is what our characters are going to be facing with. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. oh, oh, okay. Let's, uh, let's see what happens. Um, and let me tell you, they, they do it. They, I guess they do it okay with Lucy. I don't know if that longing for somebody also, you know, dives deep into insecurity mm-hmm. or something, because there is that moment where, you know, she's on. Uh, the the magician's island, and yeah, she goes, yeah. or the oppressor, as those um big one single footed men, uh, or elves, or whatever they are. I I should research these uh creatures, but um, you know, it we learn there like through a book of spells that she longs to be like Susan, um, but Edmund, however, remains quiet through like this entire film. Yeah, yeah, we, it's it's yeah, he he's not as bad as um Prince Caspian where I feel like his character was completely under underserved in that one. Um but I do agree with you. Lucy I feel gets the most um development of the two of them. Um and Edmund not so much. Um they kind of keep playing on that temptation from the white witch from the first one, which is fine, but I feel like they don't really go anywhere with it. Not right? at all. Which is unfortunate because I feel like now that he's all grown up, you know, I think you know, maybe they can explore that on somewhat of a deeper level because it has affected him or to some extent it's it feels like for a number of years. So I you know, I was curious to see where they would go with that, but it's literally just the white witch saying, you know, Edmund, you know, just give in essentially is what she tells him. Um so I like, I, you do bring up a good point. Um, you know, Lucy, I feel like she's mostly looking for beauty, right? She's envious of her sister and how beautiful she perceives her and feels maybe that um, if she were more beautiful, then she would be able to, you know, find a relationship of her own. And because we do find out a little bit later when they do enter Narnia, uh, Caspian says, oh no, I've been single this whole time. And she like perks up when she when she hears that, right? So maybe there's, it once maybe there's uh, somewhat of an, of an exploration that could go there um, where Lucy is also at the same time looking for some kind of companion, but we really don't go there. I think it's more just on the beauty side, which even then I feel is not really um, explored on a very deep level. I like where the film does go, but I wanted to see more of it because I feel like it was, you know, it was fixed too, too, too fast. Way too fast. Yeah. Because it's like the, you know, we it is set up that she wishes she was like Susan um, in earlier in the film, but there isn't that temptation that she holds on to when she goes into the oppressor's mansion and rips the page out and takes it with her. That's when I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Um, and that scene that they do that happens with her, that hallucination-like scene that um, where she becomes Susan and essentially Lucy is like cut out of the picture. Um, I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I want to see more of this, right? Because it feels somewhat of like a nightmare um, when when she has this hallucina- hallucination or this vision, I guess. Um, I liked where it went, but unfortunately it was like once she like snaps out of that, 
she throws the paper in the fire, and that's the last we hear of that temptation at all. Let's talk about Eustace. Yeah, let's talk about a Eustace. A little bit. Yeah. What is his act- actor? What is he? What else has Will he done? Poulter. He has he done, done? We're the Millers. He was like that uh, quote unquote son. Okay. Uh, he was also, I can't remember his name, in The Maze Runner. Uh, he's um, oh, one of them big him? top dogs. He is. Summer, that's where I know him from. Miss Summer as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was weird because this was the first movie I've ever seen Will Poulter in. Mm-hmm. But like, then I saw Midsummer like uh, two summers ago when it came out. And watching him in that movie compared to this, the first time I'd seen him, it was like a dramatic change in like just how um, his character like structure was. So it was. It was wild. I do enjoy this actor. Mm-hmm. I've also seen him in like a movie called mm-hmm. Detroit. Oh, which yeah. is a true yeah. story. But he's he's a great actor. I I enjoy watching his performances. Not this movie though. I think he is very over the top. I don't think Will Poulter. Um, I just I don't I didn't care for him. See, I guess I feel kind of the the opposite on this one. Um, I, I felt like you know for what the role what his role is supposed to be. You know, I think he plays it rather well. Um, he is meant to be very annoying. <laughs> I think they force that annoying on us though. I mean, That's an issue. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. I think that they, you know, push it maybe a little bit too much. Like they make him like essentially a cartoon almost of um, what he stands to represent, you know, that him just being annoying and needing to learn bravery and whatnot. Um, so to so some aspects, I do enjoy his character um, because I think he has acted really well. Um, especially for how old Will Poulter was at the time. Um, and at the same time, too, once we hit a certain point in this film, he kind of disappears. He is here every once in a while, and he does become a dragon, so he stops talking. <laughs> um, so to some extent, um, I think I do like the way that they handle his character because he does learn something in the story. That is true. But at the same time, I, I do agree um, he is annoying and even though they, you know, purposefully made him that way, they didn't make him very likable either, which is an issue, um, at, at the same time, because, you know, the audience is not, is going to have a hard time relating to a character that they find that they, that they were rejecting, kind of like what you and I did, you know, we didn't really like him at all, it seems like. Um, and so I, th- that is still a problem, right? Um, but I do think that his character is acted rather well, despite that fact. Sure. Sure. But I mean, it is kind of nice though that he he does turn into a dragon in the second half of the film. Um, so we don't really have to deal with yeah his persona. Uh huh. Yeah. He his yeah his persona. We don't have to deal with that. He he becomes a dragon, and that's where he learns that he needs to be brave or whatever. Um. He, it, it took it took him becoming a dragon to bond with the mouse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so. I mean, I guess those are just my thoughts um, on Eustace. Um, I, I don't find him nearly as annoying, but I know it is a, a problem for a lot of people in this film. So this movie is full of special effects shots. It's not, it doesn't have the most of the three movies. I think Prince Caspian has about a hundred more shots with special effects in it. Uh, but this one feels like, you know, it is taking the the crown for, you know, special effects when it comes to how much, how much, how much they lean on that, right? And we noted a few things that just looked kind of strange in the film. There's a point when I think it's actually when they reach the first island, they liberate the island. There's a there's a tracking shot where it's following a character in the background. You can see it's clearly 
um, like, you know, animated the background is. But you can see it moving kind of abnormally towards the end of the pan. It, it is. Yeah. It's almost like a backdrop yeah, it's, in a studio. It's plot. weird. It's it, weird. It, it doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. It's very, not unsettling, but it is, you can catch it right away and you, you, you just see it and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What? What is yeah. that? And that, I guess also um, later on at the very end of the story, when Lucy picks up Reaper Cheap, um, <laughs> uh, her hand kind of goes, you know, her hand kind of morphs into Reaper Cheap, it looks like. And then also later yeah. when she hugs uh, Aslan. Aslan. Yeah. yeah. You can definitely see that. Let's also talk about that mist. Where all oh, the yeah. all the citizens of that first that are fleeing, yeah. the the mist comes out of well the off the horizon and out of the water, and there is a moment while the boats of the citizens or the civilians were surrounded, and you can see in the bottom right corner the moment where the boat disappears from frame. Yeah, where they even cut though it. The, even though the mist is like covering them. Mm-hmm. It's pathetic. <laughs> yeah, you can see right the moment where they cut the film to to make the boat disappear. And that's yeah. and that was like right before the mist came. We had a we had a time lapse of clouds rolling and so yep. like, like it wasn't like animated clouds rolling. It was like a time lapse. So it's it's like your typical cloud rollings. Yep. But over like a like a fifteen minute period. Mm-hmm. So I wrote down in my notes here. Like one after the other, like as I was watching, I was like looking at the screen at the at the movie as I was like not even looking at my keyboard, and I type backdrop alert, the time lapse alert, do a bad CGI alert, and then all caps. You could see the moment they cut the rowboat from frame of the water. Yeah, lazy. So yeah, that that didn't make much sense to me because they have you know they they have that mist that in theory should cover up you know what obvious cuts they would make and that's in that right there but for whatever reason that they it didn't that i guess didn't mask it well enough but yeah that that scene mm, you it, it just kind of showed like you know it, it just the animation in this movie the cg in this in this movie does look kind of not great in my opinion um i feel like the last two had better <laughs> cg in their older films um, much better yeah because this one i think also part of it is they're wanting to at least from what i see they're going for a more cartoony style um at least that's what i'm that's what i think that they're going for <sighs> i just don't like that though. but yeah no i agree with you when it plays with human characters it doesn't fit very well um all the time like the boat i think every shot that's like on the deck of the boat might it looks pretty practical but when we have you know helicopter shots um of the of the void of the don treader it's clearly cg um, and then, of course, Re- Reaper Cheap is uh, almost all CG. And then we have, uh, I think it's a Minotaur that I I think it flops back and forth between practical and CG. I but couldn't tell. Yeah. Like, there, there like are he, moments where he just, like, he's like doing his duties up on the deck. Yeah. That you might, you look at him, you're like, oh, I think that's a costume. Mm-hmm. But there's also moments where he's up kind of making fun of Eustace. And you can just see it in his face, like this is no longer a costume. Like his, his like facial muscles are not, you know, puppet like. And I don't really like that. I've never been a fan of over the top CGI or over usage of CGI. Yep. I really loved the first two movies and their use of practical effects. Yeah, because they they kind of whenever they do use CGI, you know, it's like okay, well that makes sense. Like for the legs of uh, Mr. Tumnus, those are by far CG, but you know it makes sense because there would be a, it's very hard to do that. You can't do that, very um, well. yeah. especially back in two thousand, the early two thousands. 
So at least with those few movies, they tried to go practical for the most part and then would layer CGI over it if they needed to. And so when they did use CGI, it felt like, okay, well, that, you know, it, it feels like it was, you know, rather earned, right? Because they tried, you know, other, they tried to use practical effects. At least it, it looked like it more often. With this movie, it feels like they relied on it way too heavily because um, the mist is one thing where I first noticed it. I was like, well, first the, door, the, the Don Treader, I guess, and then the mist, they both just looked kind of, you know, not very, not as realistic, right? And I kind of get it because they don't have, um, like ties to 20th Century Fox might not have had ties to whatever animation studio Disney had used. I think it may have been, who knows, it may have even been Industrial Light and Magic or who knows. Um, but either way, my point is, is that with, with this movie, be, despite them using CGI, I feel like most of the time it's overutilized, like you were saying, right? I think the big, one of the, a good example of this too is also when Eustace becomes a dragon. It, it just looked so weird, right? It looks like it was a cartoon almost because of how they had handled the CGI. I, I, I don't know if it's on purpose. Um, it, I, part of me feels like it, it partially is um, because they don't want to, it's still a fantasy, right? They, they don't want to, you know, create, especially when it comes to the, uh, the sea serpent at the end, you know, it's clearly CGI. I just wonder, you know, how much of this was on purpose and how much was it of it was actually because they either didn't have the money or didn't have the resources to make it, you know, photorealistic. Well, okay, let's talk about how this movie um goes from scene to scene. It's a pattern. It's a it's very much a pattern. And by the time we got to the first sword, I pointed it out. I was like, there's a pattern to this film. Mm -hmm. So I had my notes. I think it was what point of the movie was this in that I've noted this. Um Oh, okay, I guess it was right after Lucy stole the page from the book, the, the book of spells. Um, it looks like, okay, yeah. So she steals the page and then she, you know, she reads the um, the spell again from the, at the, looking at the page. So she has that dream sequence or that that vision again with where she becomes Susan. Um, and then right after that, uh, we also see that mist tempting Ed and Caspian. And this is where I noticed it. I said, I'm sensing a pattern here. They sail to an island, no signs of life. Turns out there is life. They get to the next clue. They go to the next island. I, it, it just makes, it just, it's just a cycle that they, that they get into for uh, essentially the entire second act where they go to an island, um, they get what they need, they find out what they need, and then they just go to the next island, right? And it, so most of the time, Lucy gets kidnapped or something. I, yeah, she gets kidnapped, kidnapped twice. And then the others have to go save her. <laughs> um, and then when they do save her, they find a sword um, or the next clue, I guess I could say. Well, let's talk about that first island and how, yeah. you know, they get captured within, well, it was 20 minutes in the film and we're somehow already in a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. And within four minutes of their capture, the rescue party comes in and saves them and they're given the first sword. Yep. And and it was like the guy who was losing his mind is the first Lord who was in the dungeon with him. All of a sudden on the outside by the beach, like yeah. he had to like scamper through like the big fight or whatever, like little, well, not even a big fight. It was like a little quarrel. And we even saw like a guy like purposefully run into a wall and all that kind of stuff. Oh, if you look at yeah. that, uh, 24 minutes and 39 seconds, like a man literally just deliberately runs into a wall. The stun double, just, yeah. Yeah. And he's just <laughs> like, oh no. Well, after that little fight, little, little quarrel, um, the, the Lord is on the beach and gives the sword to cast me. He's like, Oh, by the way, this was in a cave. I have a sword for you. It's covered in coral, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. He's like, by the way, this was in a cave. Here you go. Like, 
oh, I guess we found the sword. Yep. That was it, easy. It very much becomes um, video game pattern logic. Yeah, right? very because, much. Because it's it's like this, uh, the cycle of, you know, exploration, find the key clue, go to the next area and repeat, right? That's kind of what happens in this story. Now, if, now they do condense it where they start finding multiple swords in places, so they have to go to seven islands. And that's where I'm saying could have made a two-part series out of that because mm-hmm. of the seven swords but whatever. Yeah, so it's just like, it, it feels like there's a lot of cutting done to this movie. And that first action scene that we get um, uh, when they are ambushed and then Lucy is sold as a slave and then um, the Nardians and the ship, they pop out um, at, at the last second. Um, that is over in like 30 seconds, right? Yeah, it's which, nothing. Yeah, which makes me, which brings up, which is up another problem um, for me at least is that they do rely heavily on action sequences to keep the movie interesting, right? Yep. But in now in the last two movies, when they did have an action scene, it felt like you know it was well earned. It felt like the movie was had built up to this moment, um, and that it was it felt earned because it the fight whatever the fight it was felt like it was it was meaningful, right? That there was it was going to have some kind of impact to the plot. This one, not really. I mean, not they, at all. They actually. kind of yeah. They have it's like there's something there, um, but it didn't feel like there needed to be an action scene. To break out, um, you know, the, to break out Lucy and free those who were there on the island, and especially after watching the final battle mixed with the battle at the castle in Prince Caspian, mm-hmm. and then the fight at Esland Keep, this is such an underwhelming little fight. It is, and it lasts no more than a minute. Like it, it's, it goes by so fast because we. It we, is so boring. We cut away to I think one of the lords running to the beach, and then we cut back and it's done. Right? Yeah, like we just missed a bunch of action. It looks like. So it's just like, oh, I miss what the last two did because those action scenes, you know, they felt like they were, they, they felt really meaningful. They felt like they had so much purpose to the story. And here it feels like they're here because they need to keep the plot interesting almost. And this is kind of the same for this scene. And then also later on the ship between Reaper Cheap and, uh, and Eustace, I guess this end of the same boat. So it's just like, man, it just feels kind of disappointing because of you know this I, it's kind of hard to shake but this does live in the shadow of those first two movies right those do come before it and they do have elements to those films that are, you know help lead into this movie um so seeing this seeing you know a movie where it's not it isn't i guess it doesn't take itself as seriously as before it's kind of underwhelming we can also talk about that one scene where Eustace kind of like flees from the fight and he takes like that oar from the boat. Oh, and he's yeah. got one of those smugglers like coming up behind him. It's that classic knocking out danger unawarely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because he, he went, he grabbed the oar and then he turned and knocked the guy off, like out. He's like, oh, oh. And it's just like, oh, how many times are we going to see this in a movie? I'm so tired of that stuff. Yeah. And I guess I could, I, I don't want to say that because of how different this movie handles its, its series of events, I don't want to say that that's necessarily, you know, why it is not, why it is not as enjoyable as the last two are. Because I, while I do enjoy those first two movies, they are still rather similar, right? Like they follow a very similar line of events between the two of them, right? And this one is very different. And I kind of like the change in pace where now is pretty much just like a sea voyage for the for the whole movie, right? So I kind of like that, you know, that change in, that change of style and that change of pace. However, you know, they're, the reason why those first two work for me is because the formula that they make and the way that they tell their story 
feels a bit more personal to these characters, right? It feels like it it works really well because it all builds together. This one, it makes it very clear what the what the uh, you know what what the story is going to be, and unfortunately, also makes it very predictable. So I just I know I, I don't know. I guess um, I'm okay with it changing styles. Um, that's totally fine because I, I do kind of want that after having two movies that are very very similar. But at the same time, you know what Disney was able to bring, I thought I think helps the movie. Unfortunately, it looks like maybe the studio's fault or the director's fault. It doesn't feel like it's nearly as impactful to me. And maybe I'm too old. Maybe, you know, it is that I don't have as much nostalgia with it. But overall, I it just feels like a movie where um, it, it's going more for cli the cliche than it is trying to follow its source material to a T. I, now, I haven't really exactly read Voice of the Dying Treader, but it's also, you know, it just feels like a movie where um, I wish... Disney still had the reins on it um, to see where they would have gone for a third movie. I do want to talk about the scene with um, with Lucy, and it's when she you know, she opens up the page in the in the ship, and she reads aloud the um, the spell again, and then it morphs into that like that vision that she has, right? Mm -hmm. I think this is a very, very important scene. It really is. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's um, solved way too fast and never comes back as a struggle for the character. Um, and so we do get that, for, we do get this scene where she essentially is cut from the picture, right? And it becomes, it flips on its head and becomes a nightmare. It's very like a, it's very much like a, it's a wonderful life kind of thing. Yeah, pretty much. And so I, and we do get that Aslan does come and say, yeah, well, you were just never in this kind of reality you were you know you were never there to show them narnia right so i really do like that idea unfortunately it's solved in that scene it's you have one scene where they introduce the temptation and then in the next scene the the, the temptation is is rejected by the character right and that's that's all the development that lucy gets for the rest of the film and so after that i'm like well why would they do that why would mm -hmm. they you know introduce something and then just completely halt the exploration of the character from then on out. Right. It, yeah. Especially like she learned it qu pretty quickly because the little stowaway girl, Gail, yeah. who, uh, you know, one of the Dawn traders, uh, newly found crewmates, mm -hmm. the, his daughter, she's like, when I grow up, I'm going to be just like you, queen Lucy. And she's like, when you grow up, you're going to be just like you. She's like, Lucy just answered her own question. Yeah, and that's also another thing, too, uh, is... Yeah, just, yeah. The last two movies, they were, they're not super subtle. That's, I'm just going to be just blunt here. They're not exactly the most subtle movies in the world. They're pretty easy to understand, you know, the 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 message I was trying to say. But they're at, they at least, you know, try to work it in so it's a little bit organic. Um, it doesn't feel like it's in your face about what the movie is really about. It's, you know, there's enough there to explore it. I don't feel like this movie ever does that. This movie feels like it's, um, it just it just lays everything out on the table. It just tells you what the what characters are thinking. It tells you its message. It's just without any subtlety. That's a great example is when Lucy says, no, you're going to be like you. Because that's one of the lessons that she learns. Just the credits right there. Yeah, that's one of the lessons that she learns is she needs to be, you know, she needs to be herself, not somebody that, you know, not somebody that she finds more beautiful. That's that's that whole Susan scene um, just to begin with. That's the whole point of it. 
it's just, it's unfortunate because, you know, you're not leaving a lot up to interpretation. It's up to, you know, just the movie just going to just tell you everything. It's not going to let you explore the movie and on a deeper level, unfortunately. I'm very underwhelmed by Aslan's appearances in this movie as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because Aslan portrays God. And I think, I mean, in the, in the end, I'd like to see this character... Uh, this creation of a character treated a little bit more triumphantly in moments. Yeah. Uh, obviously the first one nailed it coming out of the tent with the music, because if you, at that time, if you didn't read the book and you, you weren't aware really of what was going on and like he, when he emerges from the tent, you're like, Oh, right. The lion from lion, which the wardrobe. Oh, it makes sense. Like, Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is kingly. This is great. Second one kind of had its ups and downs with it. The play it toyed with what they could do with Aslan's um, entrances, but they still work. This one, I don't know. He appears in the mirror. He's he does say some very true to life things, uh, which I quoted them. Says, "You wished yourself away and much more." Then he also said. You doubt your value. Don't run from who, who you are. Mm-hmm. Great lessons right there. Um, but I think that's this part in the movie is the only other than the very end um, is the only thing that actually gave me the chills because he says that and you hear the theme. Finally. Yeah. You hear yeah. the theme uh, of Narnia and you're just like, okay, there we go. But then again, it's quickly gone. Yeah, it's I guess it's just unfortunate. Also, I do want to just briefly mention, um, what do you think about how they made Aslan to look at this movie? Because I don't think he... Yeah. yeah, A lot cheaper. I agree. He does not look very good in this movie, I don't think. He, again, like everything else, CGI-wise or creature-wise that I've mentioned, he looks more like a cartoon, unfortunately. And I feel like that also kind of pulls away because... Again, with the first two, you know, they that realistic that realistic style that they went for kind of helped make it feel like a fantasy for kids come to life, right? This one, I feel like it goes just too far for that cartoony side of it, unfortunately, especially with its creature design. It's just, I, I don't really like it because it doesn't feel, um, you know, it doesn't feel as realistic as before. It feels like those first two movies treated its audience a little bit more uh, as if they were more mature adult, mature people, mature adults than this one does, at least with, again, with its creature design. This one, again, also with how they um, present its message and whatnot, it just feels like there isn't a whole lot for the audience to left up up to interpretation, um, or it doesn't feel like it treats its audience very, uh, it it treats them like they're actually kids, instead of giving them something that they normally wouldn't be able to see um, with with those first two. One other thing too is this movie feels just really bloated. Like there is so much that they try to do in this movie, but part one and part two, I'm telling it, you, yeah. Like, but in the, it, I think that if they had split it into two parts and were and allowed more time to explore some of these things, you know, maybe that would have helped make the story flow a little bit better. But it just feels like there's so much that they have to do that I was able to see. You know, well, it looks like they made a cut here. They stripped out a lot of things here. I think a good example, uh, again, was that action scene um, when the first action scene that happens at 20 minutes in, um, it, it feels like the, you know, there's a whole scene there where there's you know actually some kind of battle going on completely just cut out, 
right? It, it just feels like there's a lot that they want to talk about, but they have to go through it so fast because of the runtime that they decided to, they decided to set. They didn't want to go for two and a half hours. How about 145 to, uh, you know, allow more audiences or yeah, allow audiences to come back in. You know, it's not much, much of a risk to, you know, go to a movie that's two and a half hours long. Now, that's a bit more of a norm now, um, having a movie that long. But, you know, it's, it's I feel like there's a, a lot of cutting because this movie just feels really choppy. And along along with, you know, how I feel about the hand, how they handled Lucy's character, that they just kind of condensed a lot of character growing moments and it feels like also Edmund kind of got the short end of the staff again um with these movies because they don't really ever explore more of his character with his temptation with the white witch and prince caspian is a completely different story because they don't explore him hardly at all in this movie which is unfortunate because i feel like in the last one he got more to him than this one whereas this one he's i'm, I'm very much a main character now and with caspian and edmund like we would really like to see. Well, I mean, in the second one, Peter has that power struggle with Prince Caspian. Mm -hmm. So they almost try to do that exactly the same thing with Edmund and Caspian. Yeah. And yeah. let me tell you what that that island where the the things turn to gold in the water. You know, if you if something touches the water, it turns to gold. Um, this scene is. <sighs> I need to read it. I need to read the Voyage of the Untreader. So I'm, you know, I got to be careful. And I, I, I don't know if this happens to Edmund in the book, but for the movie's sake, man, this scene does not work. Yeah, it's, it feels like a flip of a coin all, just out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. When he decides, it, you know, it's like, well, we could be rich with all this. It's like, wait, Edmund, you care about money? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, like, you're, you're really, you succumb to greed this easily? I just, I don't know. I, I need to read the book and make sure that I'm not, you know, just misquoting and yeah. destroying what C.S. Lewis had in mind. But in the movie, and I guess how it's delivered, just doesn't feel right. Like, you don't feel anything when, you know, Caspian and Edmund are at their, you know, have their sword drawn at each other. And uh, he's like, I'm tired of taking your garbage and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, mm -hmm. like I'm king and stuff. And Prince Caspian's like, oh, then where have you been? And all that kind of stuff. Just like, where did this conflict from come from? Yeah. It, I've never seen a power struggle at all until this moment. I agree. And it, it's pretty much over once the scene's over. That's They don't ever yeah. really reference. I think they try to reference it again. Barely. Uh, when he's like, I think of you as my brother, Ed. By, by the way, Prince Caspian suddenly has a British accent. I was going to touch on that earlier. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he has a Spanish um, American. Uh, well, he has an American accent with, um, or he speaks English with um, Spanish um What's the word? Accent. Accent. Yeah, an yeah. accent to it. You know, you are not Indians. You are supposed to be extinct. Like he does that. But in this one, he's like, he's like, uh, well, if you said the same thing, he's like, yeah, Narnians, you're supposed to be extinct. Like that's what he sounds like. It's like, what happened in three years? Yeah. So, whatever. Yeah. So I feel like this character is just completely underserved. And that that scene too, um, that that scene where they have that random power struggle, I can buy that it is the mist that um causes it right that's what they're going for but you're correct you know where did this come from because as far as we're aware as far as the audience is aware you know edmund never really had too much of a of a, of a greed problem or you know that temptation that he could be rich right so i wondered if if maybe they had handled that a bit better or a, a, a bit differently where it was more of um along the lines of what the white witch had done 
to Tempest Edmund to begin with in the first movie, if they'd harken back to that, you know, you know, what if they were able to roll that in the movie? Again, I'm I'm also with you. I haven't read the Don Treader, uh, Voice of Don Treader book, so this very well could have been handled better there. But how it's handled in the movie is its own problem, I think, because that scene feels completely out of left field. Um, it, it doesn't feel like it feels like there's more to this scene, but it's just not there, right? So when Edmund does decide, he's like, oh, we could be rich, you know, it, it feels just completely out of nowhere. It, it feels like it's just drama for drama's sake. And that's, again, one of these things that just lasts no more than 30 seconds and it's over and it's never referenced in the story ever again. It feels like it, it serves very little purpose. Very little. Yeah. So it's just unfortunate. It's just unfortunate because I think there's a number of those things in this movie where it's there but it's not really ever referenced. It's there for two minutes. Yeah. And then boom, it's resolved. Like with Caspian and Edmund at each other's throats. Yeah. Like Lucy jumps in. She's like, stop it. Please stop it. Yeah. Let's go. And they're like, all right, all right. I'm sorry. And they leave just like, ah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. I think that happens way too much in this movie. And I kind of really get it does. because, you know, they're trying to explore somewhat of the seven deadly sins, right? Mm -hmm. The seven swords. And they had, you know, envy is one of them. Let do kind of briefly touch on some of them. They don't really go into detail with a lot of them. Like lust is just briefly touched upon. Barely. Um, yeah. Same with kind of, I, even the same with gluttony. Um, that one's you no, know, it has something to it, but they don't really ever go into detail with it. So I can kind of see, you know, that they want to have those things of being a, affect our characters. You know having to move on and not go too deep into them because of partially runtime and partially because they have more to get through. I can get that. I can kind of get behind that. But at the same time, you know, at least have it affect the plot, right? At least have it come back in some kind of way or affect these characters where it makes a bit more sense, right? Some of them, like the greed, it's just straight out of left field, it feels like. I want to talk about the sea serpent. Oh, yes, the sea serpent we found ourselves a new inside joke thanks yes. to this movie yes so yeah they travel into the dark island is what they call it the dark island which was right next door to aslan's table yeah just how convenient yeah just like, i mean i know they are the lone islands but right it's just yeah it is kind of you know convenient that they are so close to yeah. one another and they take some no more than a, especially a, with lillandell uh -huh. or lillandell i can't remember she you know she appears from the as the blue star and she's like like, I am Lillandell. They're like, you are beautiful. She's like, oh, this is distracting. I'll be, you know, I'll be whatever you want. And something else. And they're like, yep. no, no. And she's like, you guys have to go. You're like, good job. You found you found gluttony. Uh, you have to go to the Dark Island now. And she's, they're like, where is that? And she just points across the way. And they're looking at Dark Island. Like, yep. I don't know, 50 something miles, like 50 miles away. I don't know. Yeah. It it just feel, yeah, this, this part, um, they fight a sea serpent in Dark Island. Um, this is, I guess, supposed to be where all of their temptations, that they fight all of, all of their temptations. We kind of get that with Caspian and kind of get that with uh, with Edmund. Again, kind I keyword on But it kind also of. talks about like their fears. Mm -hmm. Like, don't think of your fear. It'll, it'll attach on to you. And, uh, and then Edmund's like, oh no. Yep. Like, what'd you think of? He's like, I'm so sorry. And then the sea serpent appears. He's like, well, Ed Boy is afraid of sea serpents. He's afraid of sea serpents. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the White Wish does appear, but I think that she would would have made an, a cooler like fear of his and like just fighting her like gaseous form would have mm -hmm. been kind of cool. But um, 
you know, obviously C.S. Lewis didn't write it that way. Right. Um, I still think it's just kind of goofy how it was played out and how apparently Edmund's afraid of sea serpents. Yeah. So. Right. Did this feel like uh, the Kraken scene? Yep. From Pirates 2? Yeah. I wondered that. Um it once the once the serpent like had wrapped itself around the ship, yeah, and started just tearing it apart. I'm just like, oh, hold on a minute, this looks and this familiar. was it was it was uh, Dead Man's Chest PG version, pretty much. Yeah. Like nobody was eaten or devoured. Like yeah. nobody dies. You don't have tentacles coming in and grabbing people and pulling them into the sea, never to be seen yeah, again. It's yeah, it's so entertaining to watch that like that whole sequence in Dead Man's Chest. Like uh-huh. I love that whole thing. Um, that movie's goofy but man is that a cool scene yeah this sea serpent moment in voyage of the dawn treader is very underwhelming sea serpent looks cool very cgi but it's very cool mm-hmm. however it's um it's underwhelming i mean nobody's yeah. really facing real danger like we're not watching like the only like real aggression and uh, physicality it brings is when he you know throws down on dragon eustace yep and, uh, you know, he takes him underwater and then throws him against a rock. That's like the only like major violence of like creature on creature we see. Yeah. Uh, everything else is like everybody's just kind of running on their small platform of a ship. Like, oh, look out. Here it comes. You know, it crushes this part of the ship. Yep. Nobody just dies. It's just kind of a fun little obstacle at that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's also interesting, too, because the last two have ended with the war, and this one ends with a fight on the sea with a sea serpent. Um, I guess you can consider it a war on the Dark Island, but um, I, it is, again, a different ending, which is not inherently bad. Um, but it is unfortunate that uh, the ending that we do have is one um, that just the, it just feels strange as to how it comes about, because you're right, Edmund, it's Edmund's fault that this all happens, so I guess he's afraid of sea serpents or whatever. So, I don't know. Yeah, I found this fight to be um, the most, uh, to me, the most, um, it was kind of the most boring to me. Very boring. Because it is just a CGI fest um, from here till, the, I guess, whenever Edmund kills it, whenever Edmund slays the, the monster. Um, so, I mean, I get it. You know, he's overcoming his fears and overcoming um, the temptation that of the White Witch finally and also be learned to be a leader and whatnot. But I just feel like, you know, it's, again, underserved because it's not really built up to mean a whole lot when it gets there. It, the execution of it, unfortunately, brings it down a lot more <laughs> than what I, I think what maybe, I guess, what I think um, could have been done better. I, unfortunately, it it just feels like, you know, well, we have to find we have to have some kind of ending and they have to go into the Dark Island anyways. So this is kind of what ends up coming out of it. A sea serpent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this ending is underwhelming, unfortunately. Um, I mean, it's, I guess it it is not like an action scene like we've had before where it just kind of cuts away from the action, um, like in the first one, but it's still at the same time, it's unfortunate, I feel. Well, why don't we talk about Aslan's country? Yeah, Aslan's country. Um, Reaper Cheap, Caspian almost goes and then decides, no, I still have more things to do in Narnia. Reaper Cheap goes, though. He goes because his duties in Narnia are fulfilled. Yeah. He's an adventurer. He has led uh, mice battalions, all that kind of stuff. He's 
found favor in Aslan's eyes, obviously with the tail in the second movie. Right. Um, he's been gifted. And he goes to Aslan and, and like says, I, I've been devoted to you. I think I'm, uh, I'm worthy. And Aslan's like, sure enough. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are. You've been devoted for me. Kind of like that good and faithful, well done, good and faithful servant kind of a deal. Yeah. And yeah. uh Reaper passes over, which this is, has to be one of the more expensive shots of the film was this, this tidal wave that blocks Aslan's country in Narnia mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, the symbolism of heaven. But, um, Reepicheep, you know, he he takes his little boat and goes over. It's a little heartwarming. I mean, yes, Reepicheep, um wasn't there at the very beginning of Narnia when uh, Peter, Susan, uh, Lucy, and Edmund first got there because it had been 1,300 years, but he was there for Prince Caspian, and you did get to know and love him there. So watching him going over was, uh, was heartfelt, and it was just like yeah. so long kind of a thing. It, you know, I mean, it, it would have been even more heartwarming if he had been a part of the first one. This is just my um, sentimentality talking. But then, you know, we talk about uh, Prince Caspian and uh, he was about to go over. You know, he sticks his hand in. He's like, I want to go in. But he's like, I think I've really owe it to the Narnians to remain king here. Right. Um, and, you know, and uh, so he kind of shows Aslan. I think I'm ready, but I'm still willing to do what you're wanting me to do. So he doesn't go in, but this is the moment where, uh, you know, Aslan tells uh, Lucy and Edmund, your time is over. Yeah. And then he, but I really do like how uh, they had said, well, when uh, Lucy says, well, we ever see you again. Like, will you come visit us? She's like, and he says, in your world, I go by another name. Mm -hmm. I think that's so cool. Yeah, that's that, that's kind of um, I do like the you know what he is representing, right? And they're kind of calling it out, right? They're like, yeah, no, the, what he represents, there's a different name for him in your world. Um, I do feel like it is kind of still on the nose for me, um, but the idea that they did bring it up, I think, is there. I, I do like that they brought it up and they're like, yeah, no, this is very much a symbol <laughs> mm-hmm. for something, right? For for a symbol of God, like we've been talking about. Um, but I do also like that, you know, this is like, this is it, right? Where they're standing, it's, you know, they either stay or they go. Um, and the Pevensey kids, they, they know that they have to go. And this is like their final moments in Narnia. Um, it just, it's just this bittersweet moment, especially for you and I, because we have so much nostalgia seeing these kids, they've come back and they've grown up in Narnia, you know, always being there every once in a while, always coming back to it. And now this is their final final moments. It's it's a weird emotion seeing seeing that kind of finality to the story, um, especially after so much nostalgia and not you know really being um, too big into or not, and not really having as much knowledge of this one than the last two. It is a weird emotion as well with the with the Pevensey kids. It does. It ends with a journal entry from uh, Eustace. He essentially it's you know completely different from the first journal entry that he reads which is essentially that, you know, his time in Narnia, he's grown up, he's learned a lot, he's become, you know, he, he believes in more of the fantasy elements. Um, he could maybe even represent something, uh, he, he Eustace could represent even kind of what, um, oh, whatever his name was in Prince Caspian, Peter Dinklage, what his character oh, yes. represents in Prince Caspian. I think he kind of represents something, something similar in, uh, in this movie, which is that of, you know, you know, the person who rejects um, 
who rejects Christianity. But then over the time over the time of spending, you know, in Narnia, he comes to, you know, understand it. And he can see the dichotomy between his first journal entry that we hear and his last, where he's fully accept he's pretty much fully accepted that, you know, this is something, this isn't complete rubbish. It's that is interesting to me. At least, you know, that part of his character does also get something he does it does get some kind of development through the story. I feel like he is Eustace is definitely the character that goes through the most change of everybody. Unfortunately, I feel like his character also disappears for a good majority of the film, but I did like that aspect too. I must say the ending of this film once again really robs um, us of a very heartfelt moment with the music. It's yeah, they yeah, do you're not right. have any recognizable themes or anything playing when Lucy and Susan, or, oh, Lucy and Susan, Lucy and Edmund leave for the last time. I want something that has been like, I want music that's been following them for these past three movies. Yeah. But instead we get, I don't even know how to explain it. It just, again, it falls into that generic, more cliche. Yeah. It's like David Arnold's like, I'm going to make this my way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make it sad. It's like, well, you should have been there in the first two. Sorry. It's not going to work like that. Yeah. But because this, we talked about this too, when we were watching it, this would be a, perfect moment to play the main theme right as uh as they're exiting narnia for the last time playing that main theme again they don't do it it's something much different it's something a little bit more on the cliche side right and you're right it does rob it where it it could just that could just add to the emotion like having music that we've heard from since the beginning of the story even like say the first pieces of music that we hear when lucy enters narnia um, having that play again mm-hmm. when she's leaving, or or something like that. You know, we don't ever we don't get that. We it's just music for music's sake to make it sa- make it feel sad instead of giving it a bit more meaning. I, I I don't know. It yeah, I agree with you. It's unfortunately underserved with the music again. To have like the Lucy meets Tumnus playing mm-hmm. over top would have made me cry. Yeah, but it didn't. And um, instead, like yeah, I got goosebumps sometimes, but at the same time, I'm just like. Just, just be good to us, please, for once. Yeah. And they still didn't. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tommy, um, what are your final thoughts and ratings for uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Non-Treader? Well, the third installment of Narnia lacks so much. Charm and entertainment being some of those huge factors. Like, it literally at times didn't feel like a Narnia movie just because of how it lacked so much familiarity. Uh, from the music to just, I guess, the world in general. And the pacing kind of pushed it in a direction that I didn't really care for. I would have liked for like a two and a half hour movie with maybe better CGI. I can't control that. And I'm not going to rely on CGI to, you know, make me like a movie or not. But it just, it lacked a lot. And it's just, it reminds me of, kind of like how the, the spider the Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, how the first one's incredible. The second one's absolutely amazing. The third one's not great, but you know, you, you watch it or uh, the aliens franchise. First one's amazing. The second one's incredible. The third one's not great or even the Godfather series. 
First one's incredible. The second one's just as incredible. And third one's not great. This is another one of those moments. Uh, And this is one of those franchises. First one's incredible. Second one is a close follow-up, just as entertaining, maybe more entertaining. Third one's not great. So I, since this is the third movie in a trilogy that does tie the world together, I do recommend it because it does go with the movies. It is a, it, it does end our characters, Edmund and Lucy. I do recommend watching it, but don't expect the first two movies. It is, it is on a path of its own. It's kind of just out there and you might not leave pleased. You might, I mean, the kids might enjoy it, but overall, like I didn't enjoy it. I, we were making fun of a lot of it. Yeah. There were very few moments where, yes, I got goosebumps and I could recognize a few things and be like, Oh yes. But they were quickly overshadowed. I mean, overlooked and over, you know, just not, not to my liking, I guess I gave it a five out of 10. You know, I gave Chronicles of a nine, Prince Caspian an eight and this one a five. So your big drop overall, um, you know, go ahead, watch it. I don't want to own this one. I'm very happy with the first two, but, um, you know, I say, go ahead, watch it, but don't expect much. Yeah. Yeah. Th- Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I, I like that it is so different, right? I do enjoy that it is taking a much different path than what we've seen before. I, I did mention this earlier. Um, because it does give this sense of, it does kind of breathe some new life into this trilogy, right? Where the first two are rather similar to each other, and this one's very much not. So I do like that aspect of it. I do like that this is the final time in Narnia, and the final time in Narnia is also the most different. Um, so there are elements here that I, I, I think are on the right track or do a very good job at, you know, bringing some new life into it, continuing the story and whatnot. Unfortunately, it's very underserved. And I think part of that is due to the fact that we're not with the same people as before. We're not with Andrew Adamson directing. We're not with Harry Griggs and Williams with the music. And unfortunately, that I feel pulls away from a lot of the story um, because the music is a very important part to not only you and I, but I feel also to the movie in general because it helped you know, create those unique emotions and felt create, you know, those unique tracks. But I don't feel that here. I feel like Voyage of the Dawn Treader is one where it's trying to do so much, but because of various reasons, it it fails to meet that mark. It feels very choppy. It feels like there's a lot cut out. It feels like these characters that are here have very little uh, exploration to them. Um, because this movie has to go through so much. There's so much to the story, but it's condensed to a point where it's just not as, it's not as fluid as the last few have been. So at the end of the day, while there are enjoyable elements to Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I also feel like because of how different it is, while I do enjoy it, and and because of how um, unfortunate some of the choices that are made in this story, I feel like Voice of the Dawn Treader is very much the weakest of the three of them. Absolutely. Um, by, a, by margins, unfortunately. Um, so it's, an, it's just, Voyage, I guess the way I can set up, sum up Voyage of the Dawn Treader here is calling it unfortunate. Unfortunate that Disney gave away the rights to for 20th century. Unfortunate that they had to continue the story down this kind of a route. 
I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm just, it's unfortunate to me that this movie is the way that it is. So at the end of the day, I guess I'm going to probably give it um, probably another, probably a five as well, but I'm going to say a not recommend for me. Um, honestly, I can, I can live with one and two being the only two that I watch and having three not, and not owning three. Um, I can, I can live with that. So at the end of the day, um, yeah, Voyage is, it's not horrible, but it's at the same time, it's just not the same, I guess. That's like, even despite it being different and despite me liking some of those elements, it's also just not the same. Okay, well, that wraps up our review of Chronicles of Narnia, the trilogy from Disney in 20th century, I guess. Um, that does wrap us up. So, Tommy, thank you for joining me on this trilogy because it's been kind of cool having somebody, you know, other guests come on and review and review stuff with us. Yeah, it's been a blast. Yeah. I loved returning to this world. I can't wait to... It's inspired me to find the, ser the book series, mm -hmm. uh, get it, and start reading them once again because... I mean, it's inspired me to start reading The Hobbit again. I've been, you know, beginning that, um, you know, both those two British uh, leaders in literature. I will soon be returning to Narnia through books. I really hope that, you know, I think there's a like there's a series planned. Yep. Um, I'm excited for that to see where that goes. Um, but these movies, not so much this third one, will always hold a place in my heart. I'm happy with the first two, like you said, to own, not this one. And may it be a recommendation for me. It's a very small one. Yeah. I will say that. Yeah. I, I don't want anybody to think like, oh, he really likes this movie. I don't. But, it, you know, it does conclude some things. And if you like closure, you'll you'll find some of it here. But, um, yeah, no, like you said, um, it is what it is. And we can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a blast having you not on just this trilogy, but also on the other podcasts as well. Hopefully we can get you back. And maybe we, someday we can have you do another uh, podcast with Corbin and I, um, because this would not be the first time that you've been on this podcast beside this this series that we've the had. The three of us. Yeah, we yeah. did Jurassic Park, all three of us, I believe. That's right. Yep, you're right. It was just, it was the original Jurassic three Park. Three years ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Yes. So thank you listeners for joining us for not only just this series, this trilogy, but also the series that we've been going on um, with other guests before while Corbin was away getting married. Um, Corbin and I are going to be back on our new schedule or our, our original schedule coming this uh, next week with Rocky. We're going to go through those movies. Um, you at this point, you've already heard or we've already released our um halloween special that being night of the living dead the original so if you haven't seen that i would definitely recommend listening to that because corbin and i are back for that one um so thank you for joining us on this journey that we've been going on through with, with different guests so again thank you tommy for joining me on this podcast thank you and we'll see you in the next podcast listeners Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. 
All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Um, so if you haven't seen The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Non-Treader, is it on Disney Plus? Is it? Yeah, yes it is. Uh-oh. Oh, we grabbed the wrong mic. Oh, no. Give it a second. This movie, this movie. Hello. Please, 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 please. I think it's your mic. I don't think it's I the think cable. it is. It's not the cable. All right, let me go get you, let me go get Poopy. you the mic. Poopy. Poopy. Slowly but surely. Ah, I want a new mic. I want a new mic. Oh, they were, we're back now, but yeah, get me a new mic. This is the foam. I don't use a sock. Yeah, your wind. I guess it's the technic. The technical name for it is a windscreen, but I, you know, who's really kind of tech. Call it a bobby. A bobby. I call it a boy. <laughs> you gotta figure. You gotta figure it out there. Shut up, sir. You got to figure it out there. Yeah. <laughs> that style that Andrew Adamson brought in the last two. Um, Andrew Hampson, director. What's his name? Yeah, it's Andrew Hampson. Okay, oh, you're right. Okay, I'm right. But it ends with whoa. But it ends with. His but it ends. Yeah, no, like you said, um, it it is what it is, and it is what it is, and uh, it is what it is, and.
on this journey that we've been going on through with, with different guests. And we'll talk to you later. Not going to say that. That was terrible. Yeah. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> talk to you later. Alligator. So again, thank you, Tommy, for joining me on this podcast. Thank you. And we'll talk. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>